This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. This is just a very quick message to say there's only two days left of our special offer for you podcast listeners to try out our new live streaming platform, Intelligence Squared Plus. So wherever you are in the world, give it a go today. We're offering it for just £10 a month if you sign up by midnight GMT on Tuesday the 20th of December. The usual price is £14.99, so it's a nice discount. And there's a seven-day free trial thrown in too. Subscribe today using the codes in the episode description. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. We've had a huge number of big debates and discussions this year on the podcast, in our online talks, and on stage at our live events in London too. This week, we're highlighting 12 episodes, some of which encapsulate the big themes of the world we've been discussing in 2022, and some of which we just love to listen back to again. Coming up on today's show, we're taking a trip into Russian history with Orlando Figes and then hurtling into the present with Elizabeth Williamson and John Ronson to dissect Alex Jones' misinformation trial in relation to the Sandy Hook massacre. These are condensed versions of the full episodes. Just go to the archive for the full-length episodes. First of all, we're going to revisit a live event with Renietta Lodge and Gary Young, which took place in Hackney this summer, and together they discussed race relations in Britain five years on since Rennie's debut book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to white people about race was published. Thank you, thank you, thanks for coming. It's always the case in these moments, isn't it, that we say that my guest needs no introduction and then we go on to introduce them, but you wouldn't be here if you didn't know that Rennie Edo Lodge is an acclaimed author, podcaster, journalist, and uh, most urgently and relevantly tonight, for tonight, author of why I'm no longer speaking to white people about race. So, Rennie, I want to start, as most good anniversaries do, with the birth. Your book came out five years ago. Did its success, and I'm talking about before the Black Lives Matter protest, it was already going gangbusters before then. Did its success surprise you? And what might you attribute that success to? Well, first off, uh, thank you everyone for being here. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's weird stepping out, I think, in public again after (laughs) post-pandemic. So I want to say thank you all for being here. And thank you to Gary as well. You know, um, I think sort of doing this almost like reflection event with you of all people is really important to me. You know, Gary's writing is some of the in my opinion, some of the best journalistic writing out there. And Gary is one of the people who, whose work I've always looked up to. So um, I just wanted to put that out there. But yeah, we need to give him a round of applause. You know. Um, uh, in answer to your question, I feel like I have to take ownership to a kind of a level of naivety in myself because, you know, I started writing why I'm, which is my abbreviation for it, because it's like 10 words long. <laughs> um, when I was like 25 years old, like I was, a, I was young. And to me, the work was the writing. The work was the writing, the working with an editor. And post like that day of publication, I had like zero expectations for how it might be received in the world. It just wasn't on my agenda. It like, wasn't on my radar. So I was kind of like a bit knocked sideways in terms of how like it gathered momentum so quickly. I think like the broader political conditions for it, you know, they made quite a lot of sense. There was the election of Donald Trump earlier that year, like the inauguration of him, I should say, which I know that there was a lot of progressives around the world really reeling from that. And also there'd been um, Brexit at the prior year as well. And, you know, we know that the Yes campaign like really utilized quite a bit of xenophobia in the campaign for leaving the EU. So I feel like like the book came out in an environment where a lot of people were reeling from those big like seismic political shifts uh, in Britain and America, but also like 
not just those two countries. Like we were also seeing like the elections of some frankly like authoritarian demagogues like around the world. And like a lot of those people were utilizing like open racism. I think people were feeling like quite shocked. Well, some people, there were also other people who I think had, you know, saw that title and re immediately resonated with it, like before, you know, it was even published. I think there was definitely like a section of people who, for whom that, the work functioned like that. Me personally, like, I had no, um, no idea. Like, five years on, like, I feel like people expect me to be a person who's like, politically savvy when it comes to me and my work and the position of it in society. And that's just not the case at all. Like I was, I was very much like shocked and kind of like still am that it sort of became the book that it became and that it meant so much to people in that way, you know? I mean, if we just sit with the title for a minute because the title is a bit like a tweet when people don't go to the link mm -hmm. and they just read the headline. And the title throws a gauntlet down, in a sense. What is it about the title that you thought, think spoke to people in a way that it did? Well, I think, like, with distance, um, there's, like, a mixture of, like, my inclination to be very earnest. Like, there was... Because when I wrote not just the title, but the piece of writing that the title came from, which was a blog post, you know, I really meant it. Like, it really came from a place of, like, I'm exhausted by this conversation. I can't do it anymore. So there was that earnestness. But then that was, like, met also, I think, with a kind of, like, you know, the wider world saw it as extremely provocative, you know? Less so as, like, a self-expression and more so as a grenade, mm. you know? And that was also something that, like, I was surprised by, I suppose, you know? I was surprised by the ways in which people received it. I mean, I think that, again, there were definitely, like, readers who read that and were like, oh, my God, like, I know where she's coming from on that, you know? And also, I think for people who absolutely hated the idea that anybody would ever utter that sentence, they were drawn in, you know? Because there were, it begins with the word why, you know? It suggests an explanation. And that was a really interesting combination, I think, you know? And I think, like, we kind of live in a time now, like, it was the case in 2017, and it's becoming even more so now, where, like, there's a lot of, like, being provocative for provocativeness's sake. I don't know if provocativeness is a word. I just made it up. And uh, I think people, like, saw it, and they were like, oh, that's what it is, mm. you know? And then, listen, and I'm speaking about myself here, so you can disagree, but like, there was a really earnest bit of writing like behind that title that was like, here's why, like, I really mean this. I'm not just doing this to be a troll. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if I was not me, I'd be trying to dissect it in an English class. Like, <laughs> what is it about this sentence that like sets people off in both a positive and a negative way, right? One could say that Black Lives Matter and those protests did change a lot of people's minds. And there are, there's polling that illustrates that. Um, and in many ways, it, it changed the conversation. Um, but that even as it did that, the power still was concentrated in the same hands. And actually, in a range of ways, we were going backwards, even as we felt better about ourselves. That Rwanda, mm. the policy of sending people to Rwanda, which would have been unthinkable, I think, even five years ago, was introduced in this, uh, um, in this moment, the kind of um, a return to stop and search in a range of areas, the discussion about cops in schools, child yeah. queue, which happened just down the road from here. And so the, the, there is a risk of us feeling better as things get worse, right? Maybe? Yeah, I think you're, you're right there. And as you say that, I think about the fact that, like, you know, if, on the topic of political parties, you know, the opposition, there's just been this report out, the Ford report, which tells you that during this 
time period that this book was out here gaining momentum. Like the Labour Party were entrenched in like factionalism and using racism and anti-Semitism as a political tool. So it's like doesn't give you. I mean, it doesn't give me much hope really in party mm. politics at all. You know, and as an author, I feel a bit like wow. You know. It's a mess, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, it's truly a mess. Like, the messages of this broad-based movement, like, doesn't seem to have taken root mm. anywhere in, in any arena where anybody could change policy at all. And even the, the opposition that claim to be progressive don't seem to be <laughs> holding anybody to account. So it's pretty grim. Because... Uh, in the, in the moment where uh, Black Lives Matter erupted this, this time, um, Labour were mostly in flight. There were symbolic moments, but it never went beyond there. And so we have this paradox of the backlash in Parliament, but the lash, there is no lash in Parliament. There is no, there are good parliamentarians, of course there are. But, you, one doesn't see an effective response where power, in, in that place where power lies, because power lies in lots of places, including in the streets. And it seems that that's the one place where a lot of the, the ideas in your book didn't manage to percolate, percolate, or they did and they're being actively um, resisted. I mean, how do you understand your book comes out with Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party in a moment of uh, not victory but ascendancy certainly for the left in Labour the, the, um, the elections in June 2017 we're in a very different time now and I'm wondering how you understand the constituency for your work among the political class at the moment? I think you're so right there, you know, at no point, um, and I don't expect it because who am I? I'm not like a, I'm not a politician or anything, but I think it's really fascinating that at no point have I ever been approached by any senior leader leadership during this time of me as, a, as an author, you know, going around, talking about this book, talking about structural racism. I think that's fascinating and, you know, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Because again, like looking at the Tory leadership election, like I thought it was fascinating how basically like um, woke was being seen as the opposition because the opposition ain't doing anything. Like the literal, the actual Labour Party, like official policy line on social justice issues is really not much at all. Mm. And I was like, that is amazing. It's just, there's a backlash against I mean, yeah, you can pinpoint me and you can pinpoint some other authors, uh, maybe, but largely, you know, we're talking about books and people's hearts and minds being changed. Um, and we're not talking about any policy proposals or particular challenges from Her Majesty's opposition. And that's why I say it's very disheartening, you know, because <laughs> I'm a bit like, yeah, like, Listen, I'm not involved in party politics in any way, but my speculation is in the pursuit of becoming electable, like the Labour Party just saying very little about it, much at all. <laughs> um, you know, like, if you, if you don't say much, then like, it can't be held against you, you know? That's my speculation, and maybe somebody in the audience is involved in them, and you can tell me if I'm wrong on that, you know? This is just me as an observer. But I do think it's absolutely fascinating. So yeah, I think that you're correct that, you know, there's such an interesting juxtaposition that, you know, this book sold a million copies, and no one's tried to make political capital of the ideas. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's fascinating to me. Um, or I no mean, the protest showed us, like, mm. thousands of people on the streets, people deeply, passionately, you know, care about this topic. And I wonder if there, maybe if we just shift the gaze of 
what is political for a moment that nobody in the political class has. But I think that my, ex my experience, this is anecdotal, of the achievements of Black Lives Matter was that it kind of pollinated and it landed in people's communities and in their workplaces and their charitable boards and there was a sense of like, we can't go on like this. And, yeah. uh, uh, and it went from maybe an understanding that this didn't look good to an understanding that they had to, you had some responsibility in changing it. And so the political resistance is kind of diffuse and almost unknowable. But I think if we look to the response, the Sewell report, which for those of you who don't know, the government commissioned a report by a buffoon and they got a buffoon's report that claimed that institutional racism wasn't really a problem, structural racism didn't exist, and up a, a range of diversionary kind of elements that had almost everybody whose work was quoted in it demanding that their work be removed from it because it had been misquoted and misrepresented. So that was an attempt to respond to, to the work that you've done and others have done, and it failed. It landed in this place where people were just like, so hang on, the, f the football team are taking the knee. That's landing in everybody's living room, and you're telling us that this isn't a problem. We did, like, it seems like it might be a problem. I'm just wondering how you read the response that there was, the official response that there was, stuff like the Civil Report. I mean, I write in the new chapter like it was their own book. <laughs> <laughs> it was the British government's own counter-narrative to the widely accepted narrative of the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, which is that there is institutional racism, we need to root it out. Mm. You know, that was their own response, and I read it closely, and I can basically conclude that their response is, there's a few bad apples, there's no, you know, yeah, there's disparities in all of these places, education, employment, housing, but they can be explained for all of these reasons that aren't racism, you know? And, you know, parts of it were kind of incoherent, really, when it came to trying to make that case. And I've now come to the conclusion that after failing to change the minds of people, uh, the Conservative Party are just going to, you know, implement top-down backlash with positional power in government, you know, because they can't change people's minds on the ground. I think that's what's going to happen. Did you know that wherever you are in the world, you can stream live Intelligence Squared debates and discussions? We've just launched a new online streaming service called Intelligence Squared Plus, where you can tune in to all our upcoming events, ask your questions, vote on motions, and also watch back all our previous events on demand wherever you want. The usual price is $14.99 a month, but for you, our podcast listeners, for just 10 days, we've got a special introductory offer of £10 per month. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in our description and use the code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching. Offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th of December, so subscribe today and don't miss out. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025-1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.
com slash squared. Now it's time to look at one of the biggest stories of 2022, Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. In October, we were joined on the podcast by historian Orlando Figes to take us through some of the big themes in Russian history and how they've been mobilized by the current regime. Our host for the conversation is the Sunday Times special correspondent, Josh Glancy. Hi, everyone. We are recording on Monday, October the 10th from a studio. Well, it's really a sort of bar, to be honest, in, in central London. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Orlando Figes, obviously a very uh, well-known writer on all things to do with Russia. He's an award-winning historian. He's a teacher at Birkbeck College, University of London, Trinity College, Cambridge, I'm sure other places over the years as well. He's the best-selling author of nine books on Russian and European history, including Natasha's Dance and A People's Tragedy. Uh, and his new book uh, we will be discussing today, and it's called The Story of Russia. It's obviously extremely timely. And I think Orlando, it's fair to say, was written somewhat with current events in mind. When did you start writing this book? Well, it was my lockdown book. Right. So I delivered it in November of last year. Mm. Um, and then hurriedly, you know, as we altered the publication date, mm. uh, rewrote the last chapter at greater length. Mm. Um, and the cutoff point was the 20th of April. Um, but you're right that it, it was, in a way, a response to the worsening situation, as I saw mm. it from the beginning of the invasion, which, let's not forget, was 2014. Yes. And my sense that the way the Russians saw their history and the way in which the regime was mobilising that history mm. uh, for its purposes was so very different from the way we saw Russian history, certainly the way I had taught Russian history for 35 years, that um, we needed a book that would be not just a sort of concise history of Russia over mm. a thousand years, which I hope is, is an enjoyable read, but a book that would look at the sort of driving ideas of Russian mm. history and the mythologies about the past that have been used by rulers um, over the centuries to legitimise what what actions they take and project a future for Russia. So I felt that there was a need for that because mm. of this growing you know, dissonance, really, disconnect between how we see Russia and how the Russians see their own history. And so take us a little bit back to the beginning. Why does Ukraine play such a central role in the foundation of Russia? And, 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 and we've talked about Crimea, but, but Ukraine more generally... And why is it that someone like Putin can convincingly, at least internally convincingly, claim that Ukraine is Russia? Um, obviously, a lot of people there speak Russian, so that's one reason. But but take us back to some of the history you talk about this book. What, what is the story about Ukraine that Russia tells itself? The story that Putin tells the Russians, and it's the story that basically Russian imperial historiography told the Russians from the 18th century, is that Ukraine was little Russia. Ukraine was part of greater Russia. It had a dialect, but not a language. Mm. Um, and its uh, capital, Kiev, was the foundation of modern Russia. But that was the first state. So uh, it's a source of Russian civilization for the Russians, as well as a source of their Christianity. Mm. And although for much of Russia's history, after the fall of Kiev and Rus in 1240, when the Mongol occupation overturned Kiev and subjected most of Russia and about half of present-day Ukraine to Mongol rule, mm. indirect rule. Basically, they collected tribute. Yes. Um, and uh, f from that point in 1240, much of Ukraine actually took a different path from Russia. I mean, the Western territories uh, were brought into the orbit of Poland-Lithuania, mm. which is one of the great medieval states. You have a number of Catholics in Western Ukraine. But from the 17th century, Ukraine was brought back into the Russian fold because of the Cossacks, essentially. And the Cossacks were, uh, again, it, they're not particularly Ukrainian or particularly Russian. They're sort of multi-ethnic cast of, of warriors who, who, who carry out everything from brigandage to fighting for anyone who'll pay them. Mm. And they had their own sort of meta, uh, sort of quasi-states, really, uh, hetmanates in, in, in the area we now call Ukraine. So there was a hetman 
cabinet of uh, of of Don Cossacks and Zaporizhia mm. Cossacks, and the Zaporizhian Cossacks uh, were fighting because they were Orthodox against Poland and Lithuania and invited um, the Tsar to. Uh, support them. Well, the Tsar Alexei at this point, in we're talking about the 1640s, early 50s, was very reluctant to do that. But interestingly, it was the patriarch Nikon who wanted uh, Russia to back this orthodox war fought by the Cossacks against the Poles and Lithuanians right. as a sort of holy war. So, I mean, I mean, this is quite, you know, resonant with what's happening today. I mean, because a major source behind this war is Patriarch Kirill, who would also mm. say that he has said that the, the invasion of Ukraine is, is a holy war. So it's from that point that, that, that Ukraine is brought back into a Russian fold and under Catherine the Great is made a regular part of provincial administration. And she then leads the conquest of what becomes known as New Russia, which mm. are the areas that have just been annexed, minus the Donbass. So New Russia was all of the coastal area on the north, uh, on the northern littoral of the Black Sea, so from Odessa mm. through to Mariupol. And, and they were called New Russia until 1917. Mm. So that becomes another dispute about what is the place of Ukraine in Russia's legacy in, in its territorial claims. Because, you know, under the Soviet Union, it didn't really matter so much mm. where the boundaries were. I mean, the, the idea of the Soviet Union was that, that nation states were gone, that you could have a cultural nation, but otherwise you were all part of the same political entity, mm. which was Soviet. So the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991 then raised a whole set of new issues about Ukraine because those southern areas of new Russia mm. and the Donbass were claimed by Russian nationalists like Solzhenitsyn, like Sobchak, who was Putin's mentor, as historic Russian lands. Mm. And so in that essay I, I referred back to from 2021, Putin makes the argument there that if Ukraine wants to wanted to leave the Soviet Union, as it voted to do so in 1991, then fine, but it should leave with what it came in with. Right. And there are two ways you can see that. You could say it came in with nothing because Ukraine didn't really exist mm. as a nation state, although there were two moments, but, you know, very brief moments in the revolution and the civil war when there were Ukrainian parliamentary and then nationalist governments in situ, but they didn't last very long. Or you could say they should have what they had minus new Russia and the Donbass. So one way of looking at Putin's sort of strategy is to say he's trying to reclaim those historic Russian lands. But, you know, he hasn't really made clear what his war aims are or why he's fighting. He began with the whole question of it's a historically justified war because Ukraine is is uh, is us. Ukraine mm. is just a variant of Russians and so should belong to us. He's then moved on from that to argue, and this, I think, is is more... I think this is closer to his real thinking. He argues in that essay that every time Ukraine, after the middle of the 17th century, and it was reincorporated into the Russian mm. world, if you like, every time that the little Russians, as he would call them, tried to break free from the great Russians, the Russians, uh, to assert their independence, they fell under the influence of hostile Western powers. Mm. So he cites the Poles and the Lithuanians in the in the 18th century, the Austrians in the 19th century, the Germans in the First World War, the Allied powers in the Russian Civil War, the Nazis in the Second mm. World War, then NATO today, he would say, they've all been doing the same thing, which is encouraging Ukrainian nationalism to turn Ukraine against Russia. And that has, to come back to your question in a rather long-winded way, <laughs> that has real resonance with with many Russians mm. who've been brought up on this story of Russia, taught in schools, embedded in Russian historiography, and since then pumped out through every propaganda channel, film, TV, books, novels, and the whole lot, that Russia is 
is vulnerable to attack mm. from the West, and Ukraine is its most vulnerable point. Clearly, you you know you you write and feel that the West has got quite a lot wrong about Russia or misjudged various things about Russia in recent decades, uh, and maybe <laughs> for longer than that. <laughs> one of the things that you write a lot about is is religion, uh, and it strikes me that that's probably one of the things that we we do sometimes misunderstand about Russia. Tell me a little bit more about the role the Russian Orthodox Church is, and, and religion is playing in this war, and why do you think we, we we sort of struggle perhaps to fully comprehend that sometimes? Well, if I can take the second part first, yeah. uh, um, I think the reason why we have got Russia wrong for so long <laughs> in all sorts of ways is that we've tended to firstly impose our own Western values mm. onto Russia mm. and then declare Russians and the Russian nation and state to be a failure because they don't mm. quite come up to our expectations. And part of the reason for that, I, I think, and I argue it in the book, is that the West has always been very dependent on the Russian intelligentsia mm. for its views of Russia. Mm. Those are the people scholars talk to, those are the people we read, those are the people we feel an affinity with, because most people who study Russia or deal with Russia never go beyond Petersburg and Moscow anyway. Those are the people they're going to meet. Mm. The trouble with that is that the Russian intelligentsia sees Russia through Western eyes. So you get this sort of uh, perfect circle you can't break. Mm. Um, and and the the church is a good example of of those spaces of the Russian mind, if we can put it that way. The mind, I don't like using the words mindset mm. and stuff. But You'll it, get into the Russian soul now. The Russian, I don't <laughs> want to go into the Russian soul, for sure. But I mean, those areas that have formed the Russian way of thinking about the world that stem from its religion tend to get overlooked by mm. the secular Russian intelligentsia and by those who rely on the secular Russian intelligentsia to look at Russia. And we we tend to think, well, you know, there's a division between church and state. Well, there isn't one, really, in, in Russia. Russia has always been politically um, a sort of Byzantine empire in the sense that, as in Byzantium, church and state are two sides of the same mm. coin. The Tsar who inherits from Byzantium the not just the blessing of Christ, but the power of a, a human god. Mm. So under the Russian tradition of autocracy, there's always been this tendency to sacralize political power. Mm. So the Tsar is the holy Tsar, uh, which you can see then feeds into the cult of Stalin and Lenin as yeah. these almost sort of godlike figures that have to be worshipped and venerated and taken on trust, never questioned. And um, the other part of that religious concept of power is, is the notion of the Russian land or holy Russia itself, because this is part of the original mythology of, of, of Russia, that it is literally the place where Christ is going to come when he reappears. Mm. You know, it's a Russia has the true God because the it's basically what we call the third Rome ideology that mm. Moscow, after the fall of Rome, after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, when it was overrun by the Turks, was the last true seat of orthodoxy, Christianity. Mm. And that, you know, the, the, the Catholic state had. Had, had had fallen into heresy effectively so so that idea that you know we have the true religion and we have the ruler who is the true god mm. is is a very important part of that but it's uh it's not just religion i think i think it's also another element of this which comes from the the mongol occupation the mongols the golden horde as they were in russia occupied and collected tribute from from the russian principalities mm. for 250 years more or less at a time when the rest of europe was going through the renaissance the scientific revolution codification of laws everything that we now see as the foundations of western civilization but they took place at the time when russia was 
basically paying tribute to, to the Mongols and never had the ability to, 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 to develop or ha even have contact mm. with Europe very much. Um, so um, so, so the, the, the tradition that comes out of that Mongol experience, which I think is always denied in Russia, because they like to see themselves as basically Europeans and Christians, and that the, the Mongols came, but they, they left, and, and there was no trace of them. This mm. is nonsense. The Mongol occupation left deep imprint on Russian culture, and above all, on, on Russia's statehood, because uh, Ivan IV, or the Terrible, who was the first sort of Tsar of, of Muscovy, as it was mm. then, to, to push back the, the, the Mongols and build a state around Moscow's power, um, did so by inheriting so many of those Mongol political traditions. Mm. So the idea that, you know, you own the land, as Genghis Khan thought he did, and that your, your, your servitors may be rewarded with bits of land for serving you, but you can take it away from them any mm. moment. There's no full allodial property in the Western sense. So there's no development in Russia of a fully independent landowning aristocracy. They're, they're military and civil servitors whose, whose, whose tenure of land is conditional upon the Tsar's favour. Mm. I would go so far as to say that you can trace that right up to Putin and the, and the oligarchs, that they are like the boyars to Ivan IV, that, you know, they can be allowed to enrich themselves. Yes. But they have to do what the Tsar tells them. Mm. If Putin tells them, give me $100 million, or if Putin says, go and run Chukotka, as he said to Abramovich, they have to go and do or it. Go and buy Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that he told him to do that. <laughs> yes, yeah, the point of some debate. <laughs> And now we're going to look at a story about conspiracy theory and accountability. One of the biggest trials of the year was when online conspiracist and host of Infowars, Alex Jones, was sued for defamation, resulting in a charge of $1.5 billion. Here's the New York Times journalist Elizabeth Williamson and filmmaker John Ronson discussing America's battle for truth and how one man sought to exploit it. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm John Ronson. On the 14th of December 2012, 20 young children and six teachers lost their lives in the Sandy Hook school shooting. It remains one of the worst school shootings in American history. But as the horror unfolded that day, what nobody anticipated was the immense number of conspiracy theories which would be tied to the day, uh, from claims that it was a false flag operation organized by the government to an attack on Second Amendment rights. These claims would plague the families of the victims for the next 10 years. One of the loudest platforms to spread conspiracy theories about Sandy Hook was Alex Jones's Infowars. Alex Jones is an American conspiracy theorist and radio talk show host. Uh, my guest Elizabeth and I, the thing we have in common is that both of our lives are at this stage entwined in Alex Jones's life. This is something that we'll talk about. For years, the Alex Jones show questioned if the massacre had happened at all, and they platformed anyone on with a new hypothesis about what really happened or didn't happen. But after years of this, Alex Jones was recently sued in Texas for defamation. He was ordered to pay $4.1 million in compensatory damages and $45.2 million in punitive damages to the parents of Jesse Lewis, who died in the school shooting. Alex Jones is now sitting his second trial in Connecticut, where the families of eight Sandy Hook victims are suing him for defamation. I'm joined from Connecticut by Elizabeth Williamson, who's been reporting from Alex Jones's trials for the New York Times, and she's the author of the superb book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Elizabeth, hello. Hello, John. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fine, thank you. So what, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about here, Elizabeth? Like how many people in America believe that Sandy Hook was a false flag? And how did they come to believe that? Was it from Alex or was it from like a whole firmament of of so I guess you'd have to say that he is among the biggest megaphones for the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory, which is, of course, why, you know, we tend to focus on him and the families have focused on him in suing him because they consider him to be the kind of source of this conspiracy theory. 
but there were many others who created the content that he put on his show. And those people's names have come up in court. People like Wolfgang Halbig, a kind of failed, um, you know, state cop and educator who came up with, um, you know, just inundated Newtown where the crime occurred with freedom of information requests, trying to get you know, information about a crime to try and prove that the shooting didn't happen. Many, many other people who, you know, made appearances on Jones's show. But the impact of all of this is that there was that ferment after the shooting. There was a combination of people who just couldn't find it in themselves to believe that 20 children and six educators had died this way. And those people kind of fell out pretty quickly. But shortly after the shooting, there was a survey done by Fairleigh Dickinson University in which a quarter of Americans said that Sandy Hook was either definitely or possibly staged. And to this day, every high profile mass shooting, and I think Sandy Hook was undeniably the beginning of this phenomenon, the kind of source of this, one fifth of Americans believe that every high profile mass shooting is staged by the government. So that gives you an idea of the millions and millions of people who question official narratives of all kinds in this country, but particularly around mass shootings. And that's kind of related to the fight over the Second Amendment um, and, you know, gun control and gun policy in this country as well. It's so hard to believe that Sandy Hook was a false flag. There's, it's, it's, why do you think so many people have come to believe it? Do, do they believe it because they're just born magical thinkers and it's just another way of being like a wellness or, and maybe not wellness is the best example, but religion? Or do they see it as a metaphor? There's a kind of fervor that's attached itself to this belief that I think is a sort of quasi-religious thing. I talk about in the book, you know, because the book really discusses Sandy Hook, not as the shooting, but this aftermath and follows this continuum, you know, from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate, which Alex Jones was very involved in too, to coronavirus myths, to the, the great replacement myth that drove the riot in Charlottesville, um, to the 2020 election lie. Yeah. And it finally concludes with the attack on the Capitol, because that's where people are willing to defend their false beliefs with confrontation and violence. And that's where the continuum and the sort of trajectory that we've seen. But I think, you know, in talking with the individual people who believe this and many other theories, because they tend to attach themselves to all of these, it has to do with, similar to Jones, there is a certain level of narcissism there. They want to be the possessors of superior knowledge. But most most important, what drives people is the sense of group identification, that when you try to inject truth into this narrative, they react as a unit, almost as if you know, you're threatening the cohesion of their group. They've been able to reinvent themselves around this. You know, people who are, I, I profile a, um, a woman who has a house cleaning business in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who is now, you know, calls herself a journalist and a citizen investigator and, you know, a guy with a moving business down in Florida, who's now the founder of Independent Media Solidarity. People have reinvented themselves around this. They have created brand new roles for themselves. They've elevated themselves and they found a whole group. I mean, conspiracy theorists used to be a lot more isolated than they are now, thanks to social media. And they are really reluctant to have truth and therefore, you know, a kind of divisive force intrude on that, that sense of identification that they've found. Mm. And in terms of the impact this has on the, on the IRL lives of the parents, are the parents ever like approached by them on the street or anything terrible like that? Yes. Actually, um, we talked earlier about Robbie Parker, whose daughter Emily died at Sandy Hook. In 2016, and I, I trace this in the book, he was on the street in Seattle. They were attending an event at which you know their daughter would be recognized and work that was being done, sort of therapeutic art that was being done um, in the community. He had parked the car. He had dropped his family as two uh, surviving daughters, dropped them at the hotel was walking back to the hotel. Man came up to him on the street. He said, didn't you lose someone at Sandy Hook? And recognized him all those years later, four years later, thousands of miles from Newtown and started spewing this venom at him. You liar, you piece of shit. How much money did you make? And badgered him for blocks. 
Lenny Posner, who really is a pioneer in the fight against these conspiracy theorists, has had to move a dozen times because they publish his home address online. People have confronted him. A woman was jailed for making death threats against him. You know, it's serious business and people react when you challenge them. I mean, his work to challenge these conspiracy theorists has really put him in the crosshairs because, again, he's not just challenging something that they say they believe. He's sort of challenging the life that they've built around believing in these theories and the social world that they have created for themselves. I mean, the cognitive dissonance, my God, lag, it's going to be very hard for them to come to a different way of, of seeing things uh, because the amount of guilt, like, my God, if they start to think we're wrong and we just, we've been harassing the parents of children killed in school shootings, the guilt is alone could prevent them from yeah. seeing that. I mean, this woman uh, from Tulsa, Kelly Watt, I really delved deeply into her life because she has a lot of trauma in her own background, which is something that I found in a number of these, these conspiracy theorists. But I talked with her daughter for six straight hours and she, you know, just described this incredibly traumatic upbringing and growing up, but that, you know, part of the reason that there was so much trauma in the family's life is that the mom was attaching herself to, at that time in the 90s, a conspiracy theory that liberals from the Department of Education were infiltrating the public school system. So, you know, on and on down every rabbit hole. But, you know, she talked about how She's a mother, she's a grandmother, and yet she has been tormenting, like sending personal messages to these family members saying, dig up your child and prove to the world you lost your son. How could you actually, you almost have to continue to grab onto this theory because you're right, you would otherwise be faced with the idea that for 10 years you have been hounding the families of murdered first graders and educators. Yeah. Not only was Lady Posner in, in their crosshairs, but so were you and and me to a, to a lesser extent. Uh, I, I'm going to ask you whether it's impacted you at all, whether you've had people yelling at you. It hasn't happened to me very much. The one really memorable time it happened was I was sort of sneaking around watching Alex and Roger Stone broadcast from the Republican convention in 2016. And I snuck into their oh, studio. Oh, it was a great piece. <laughs> I snuck into their live studio in a sort of makeshift Airbnb. And there was a guy that I didn't put this in the piece, actually. I don't know why not. But there was one guy, everybody was just sort of left leaving me alone. But there was one guy in that room just staring hatred at me, like giving me looks as if to say, I know who you are and I hate you. And I was feeling a little like, yeah, okay, I've got need to be wary of this guy. And I and I watched him go up to Alex and whisper something and look at me. And I said, no, no, he's fine. He's fine. Don't worry. So the guy sort of reluctantly backed off. And then I recognized him again a couple of years later because his, he's, his name is Joe Biggs and he's now in jail for being one of the ringleaders of January the 6th. He's one of the heads. Right, in the Proud Boys. Yeah, one of the heads of the Proud Boys. So he's, you know, a very serious figure. He was right there with Alex and Roger Stone. He was much more hostile towards me than anybody else was there. And he's now in, in jail, awaiting trial for being one of the, the ringleaders. So what about you? Have you had people attacking you? Has Alex attacked you? Yeah, yeah. He's um, actually spent the weekend doing that because um, I did my interpretation on Twitter of, you know, his postponement of his, you know, second part of his testimony as, you know, he's done so much damage to his case that it would be better to give the jurors a rest. So I wrongly said that his lawyer had said that in court. His lawyer didn't say that in so many words. That was not a direct quote from his lawyer. So as we do in real journalism, I corrected that and took that tweet down. That, of course, has given them an opening to run through. So he is from the beginning of this, you know, my interest in this case. And since the book came out, you know, mentioned me on his show, but he'll often just say the New York Times because that's a more handy whipping boy um, and a kind of traditional enemy for for himself and his followers, but he's been mentioning me now by name. So I've noticed a little bit more hate on social media, but again, I, I always compare it to what the families have endured. And so I just, you know, it's, it's re relatively, absolutely minor. And I also attribute it to the fact that 
people who are listening to Alex Jones are listening to a completely different news, quote unquote, news ecosystem. That's part of the problem. That's part of where we got where we are, that you're, you don't have a lot of cross-fertilization. You know, people don't watch Fox and MSNBC. They don't, you know, read the New York Times and go to the Epoch News or the Epoch Times or whatever it's called. People aren't reading what I write um, in Alex Jones's world. And so maybe that's been helpful in that regard. So what was it with you? What, what, um, what brought you into this? So it was very much about the families. So from the beginning, when they first filed the suit, I think the day after the first suit to be filed was... Um, two lawsuits that are now part of the damages trials in Texas by um, Lenny Posner and Veronique De La Rosa, whose son Noah Posner is the youngest Sandy Hook victim, Scarlett Lewis and Neil Heslin, whose son Jesse Lewis, I mentioned them earlier, Jesse Lewis died in the shooting as well. How old was Noah Posner? Uh, Both boys were six, six years old. So um, they filed that suit in mid-2018. And I went to my editor and we were at that moment kind of living through that sort of what everyone was calling then the post-truth era. You know, this idea of Kellyanne Conway, advisor to President Trump, talking about alternative facts. And, you know, we were in this moment that, you know, was rapidly becoming unrecognizable, where truth was a malleable thing as opposed to an objective standard. Science was like a left-wing affectation and so on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which began with climate and rapidly moved on to the pandemic. But that, you know, obviously before the pandemic, but it was it was in that moment where we were, you know, as a country kind of grappling with, oh, no, this is something we haven't really seen before in our politics. Politicians spin, but they don't out and out lie and repeat it constantly and expect everyone to believe it. And moreover, a significant amount of people are willing to to embrace these falsehoods for the sake of political fealty or or loyalty or tribalism or what have you. So I was saying, this is going to be a really interesting test of what I thought at the time would be the First Amendment. Just does freedom of speech actually protect these dangerous falsehoods that travel so rapidly via social media and really impact the lives of vulnerable people like this? Does the First Amendment actually protect that? And what's the role of social media in all of this? Because they were definitely the vehicle by which this spread. So my editor, being brilliant, if she's listening, um, was saying, actually, yeah, why don't you go down to Texas and see what this is all about? So I went down there, but I had never really heard much about Alex Jones until 2015 when President Trump, then candidate Trump, um, came on his show in December of 2015. We should just rest for a moment on that moment because uh, it was so extraordinary because Alex, you know, he was always very much a, you know, a figure on, on, on the show. I remember I went to a militia meeting with him at one point. Uh, it was at David Koresh's church. And there's a moment when one of the militia guys is introducing Alex. He's going to give a speech. And he says, you know, this guy is 26 years old. Uh, by the time he gets to 36, he's going to be the youngest president of the United States. And I've had everyone like cheered. And I remember thinking, you know, for Alex Jones to become the youngest president of the United States, an awful lot will have to go wrong uh, in society. <laughs> and then cut to 2015, and, you know, the president-to-be is on Alex's show saying, you know, what a great reputation Alex has and, and how Trump, I won't let you down, Alex. And, and I just thought, my God, you know, and <laughs> things have spiralled. <laughs> 